to be with you. If you're visiting, really glad that you're here with us. We are in the book of Exodus, and just what we do as a church is we pick a book of the Bible or a big part of a book, and we read straight through it, line by line, verse by verse. We don't skip over anything because we want to hear everything God has to say to us. We think all of his word is valuable. That, um, that like part of our identity as a church is really put to the test today because we're doing two and a half chapters, and so it's going to be a lot of reading, but uh, a lot of good stuff in it. Um, we are in the book of Exodus. Uh, God is bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt uh, through Moses, and he's doing it with a, a, a mighty hand and doing these, these great wonders in the land of Egypt. That's what we kind of started seeing last week. We saw the first three plagues. Um, two purposes God has in unleashing these plagues in Egypt. First is to punish the sin of the Egyptians, especially in their, their treatment of their Hebrew slaves and, and their injustices towards them. It is punishment for their sin. Um, but the second purpose in response to the question that Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord? Who is Yahweh, the, the God that you're telling me, the God of the, e the, the, the Israelites? Who is he that I should obey him? And this is God revealing, okay, this is who I am. Uh, that I am the, the Lord of all creation. I am the true God. Um, part of what God is doing here, uh, specifically for the Egyptians, is he is indicting and exposing the false gods of Egypt. Uh, by showing that he has power over these things that the false gods are supposedly the gods of. So the God of the Nile, the Yahweh, the God of Israel, he has power over the Nile. Um, even today, the sun, the, the God of the sun, Ra, uh, Yahweh, the, the God of, the, of Israel, he has power over the sun. Um, as we mentioned last week, I'll say it again now, uh, the, the worship of false gods uh, creating idols, creating our own gods to worship, that is n something we do just as much now as the ancient Egyptians did, as the ancient Romans did, as the Mayans did, like anywhere you can point to in history uh, where, where they've created these false gods. Uh, it's just a different form. It's a different form, but it's essentially the same thing. The way the ancient pagan worship works is they have this pantheon of gods and goddesses, and each one sort of represents something else. Um, and, uh, and so what you do is you give that God an offering or you do this ritual, you do this thing to appease them, and if they're pleased, you can get that thing from them. So, so each one, they represent things that, that you might want, like money, sex, power, control, comfort, whatever it is, and they just have different names, but that's essentially what the modern idols, the modern gods that we create and worship are, right? Your God is money, your God is sex, your God is comfort, whatever it is, that's the God that you worship. Modern idolatry works on the exact same system, which is we don't have like uh, carved figures or names for, for the representative, right? Uh, and, and we have kind of different ways to make offerings to that idol and, and different rituals, but it, it, it works in the same system. 500 years ago, the reformer John Calvin, he said that our hearts, the human heart, is a perpetual idol factory. That it's just part of our nature. We churn them out, we create them, we, we make these things in, in order for us to, to worship them and feel like we're getting what we need from them. And, uh, and we do it because like, we, we love our idols. Like, people are really attached to and love their idols. They're attractive because uh, false gods and idols, they don't make any demands of you. Does that make sense? Like, a, a false god, it doesn't say no to the things that you want. They, they kind of let you live the way that you want. So if money is your god, it doesn't tell you, here's what you have to spend on, here's what you can't spend on. It doesn't say what to do with it. Or, or if sex is your God, it doesn't like, give you limits on like, how you get to practice that. Uh, it, it always says yes to whatever you want, which feels good because we want to do what we want to do. We want to live however we want to live. The problem is they are false gods. They, they won't, um, whatever it is that you're trying to get from them, that thing is never going to make you feel satisfied and full and complete. Uh, they're, they're hollow and they're empty, but behind them, there is something that is true. There is a true source, and, and you see what, what you need and what I need and what the Egyptians themselves even need 
is, is what God is doing through these plagues in Egypt where he is exposing the false gods. Uh, we don't need it to be done in the exact same way, you know? We don't need, like, a bunch of frogs let loose, um, but we do need, uh, and it is God's mercy to expose what's false so we can see what's true. However that happens, however it is that God exposes the, the false idols, the false gods, the false hopes that you have, however he does that and brings you to know what's true, that's God's mercy to you. Whether it happens through something as, as mild as, as a conversation with someone or something that you read or, or this, this strange thing that happened, or uh, if it happens through a more painful experience like the Egyptians are experiencing um, and I know, I know not everyone in here may be a Christian, and that's fine if you're here, you're exploring your faith, or even if you're, like, skeptical about God, um, if that's you, I'm glad that you're here. Just imagine for a minute, imagine that all of this is real. Like, just pretend, if, if you have to pretend, just pretend that the, the God of the Bible is true. Uh, he is the creator. He's the author of life. If God is real, then we are all sinners. We all have guilt towards him. Because, like, if, if he is real, he's the source of everything. He gives us life and breath and everything. Everything that we have is this blessing and this gift that he's given to us. And we respond to him by, by ignoring his existence, uh, telling him to leave us alone, uh, blaming things on him when they're not going the way that we want them to. This is what it's like. So imagine you know, people all over the place. Imagine that you're 25 years old. If, uh, if you're not 25 yet, look forward to it. I think 25 is like the peak. Um, for some things, not like life goes downhill from there, but just like some things go downhill. You'll never look as good as you do at 25. Like it's just kind of a slow, you'll never feel as good as you do. Like your body starts breaking down. You start owing more money to more people unless, unless you really do some things right, uh, you know. So, if, if you're not 25 yet, look forward to it. If you're past 25, you already know. So just like put yourself back there. Remember the good old days. Um, all right, so imagine you're 25. Imagine that you have uh, just the best parents ever. They're, they're loving, they're supportive, they're always with you and for you, and, uh, and, and they give you everything that you need. So they, they paid your way through school. Um, through, through their connections, you got a great job. Uh, you, you got married, they paid for the whole wedding. Uh, they, they bought you a car, they bought you a starter house, just, it's yours, okay, they're a gift to you. Uh, they've done all of this for you, and you're standing there with, uh, it, you know, at your new house with the keys, with your new car, uh, no debt, nothing, your great job, whatever it is, and then you turn to your parents and you say, now I want you to leave me alone. I don't want to hear from you. If I need you, I'll let you know but otherwise, don't bother me. Right. If the God of the Bible is real, if, that, if he's real, that is essentially the way that we treat him, like by default. We are all sinners. We're all guilty. We don't love God like he deserves to be loved. We're not, we're not grateful towards him. We're, we're demanding, we're entitled, uh, we, we reject what he says. Anytime God says something that we don't like, we just toss it out. I don't like what he says about money, toss it out. I don't like what he says about sex, toss it out. I don't like what he says about forgiving this person, I don't want to do that. I don't like what he says about compassion or humility. We just get rid of it. We, we reject what he says. If all this is real, we are sinners, but at the same time, if all this is real, God is much more loving than we could ever imagine because he sends his son Jesus for us. And Jesus makes a way for us to be forgiven and he extends it to us as a free gift. Like if, if the Bible's true, if this is real, there's an eternal life that's offered to you. An eternal life that's unbroken by any sin, uh, full, full of, of healing from all your hurts, uh, full, full of peace, full of joy his gift to you. He wants you to take it. He invites you to know him. And if that's true, if you can get that, if you could actually receive that, wouldn't you count anything that brings you into that as a blessing? Like, no, no matter what it is, I would. 
anything that brings anyone to, to know him like that and to receive this offer that he gives you as a free gift, like that is a blessing, it's a mercy, it's worth praising God over. The, the plagues in Egypt are something that God uses to reveal who he is, to show that he is our creator, that he's a good God, he's just, he cares about justice. And at the same time to reveal that he is a gracious savior. That's, that's what we see and what we're looking at, what we're reading today. I hope that that is what God unpacks for you and helps you to, to see and understand that he is our creator. He's a good God. He's just and he is a gracious savior. So let's start getting into it where we left off from last week. Exodus 8 verse 20 we read this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies may be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies in the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to our Lord our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from the people tomorrow. Only let, Pharaoh, uh, let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And so Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the, the Lord did as Moses asked, and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also, and did not let the people go. Um, I don't think I need to explain in depth why flies are not good, right? Like, if you've ever been to LBI, uh, and if you're not, if you're a New Jersey transplant, Long Beach Island, down the shore, not the beach, it's down the shore. And so on LBI, when there's a west wind from where the bay is, it brings these nasty horse flies that just bite chunks out of you. And it's, it's miserable. You can't, you can't be out there. You can't, uh, you can't enjoy anything. It's, it's terrible. Um, a few things to note in here first. Uh, really significant, God tells Pharaoh through Moses that I'm going to make a distinction between your people and my people. The, the people who worship these false gods and Pharaoh himself claiming to be a god between your people and my people in the land of Goshen to, to show uh, the, the difference in these realities, the difference in my power and, and your power. Um, these, these are acts of judgment on Egypt for how they've treated the Hebrews, their Hebrew slaves, and they don't need to be punished. And so God is, is showing clearly this distinction between the two. Second, look at how Pharaoh responds. He responds by trying to haggle with God, uh, which, which is funny, but it's something that everyone does. Like, we all, like, God, we, we know what God's telling us to do, and we say, God, maybe if I could just do it this way, you know, if I could just uh, maybe not do that, if I, if I could just, um, we, we start haggling, and uh, Moses is trying to get permission for the Hebrews to go three days into the wilderness to, uh, to, to offer sacrifices and worship to God, and Pharaoh says, you know, why not just, just do it here, just do it here instead. Uh, bargaining with God is not really how it works. Uh, and it shouldn't, because he's the Lord of all creation, right? Like, there are some places you can't haggle. Like, fa Facebook Marketplace is one thing. That's like the Wild West. It's crazy there. People are, are strange. Uh, don't, you don't haggle at, like, Target, you know? Don't try. 
they don't pay that poor person enough to tell you they can't lower the price for you. Um, or like when you get your mortgage, if you have a mortgage, you get your bill in the month, like every month, you don't call up the bank and say like, you know, let's knock $500 off and call it a deal. Uh, there are certain things you don't get to, uh, you're not in the position to change, right? God demands obedience. He demands complete surrender to his will, and we don't get to edit that. And that's a hard thing. Like, he asks a lot from us. He wants us to give ourselves fully over to him, and that's why to be a Christian and to follow God, it requires faith. It requires trust that that God's will is good. It's ultimately for my good. His way is better than my way. God's will here is for his, his people, for their freedom, but even for Pharaoh, like it's much better if he just submits to God's will because if Pharaoh could kind of look back in hindsight at the end of all of this, he'd see all these opportunities that this God gave me to let his people go. I would have been much better off if I just listened in the first place. There would have been less pain, less loss, less anguish if I just humbled myself and listen in the first place. Uh, he, uh, he, he changes his mind again. He's in this habit. He's stuck in this cycle where as soon as things get better, he changes his mind. He's, he's not willing to, to take the full step and full commitment to, uh, to obeying the words of the Lord. And so uh, let's, let's keep reading. We're gonna, we're gonna keep reading the next few plagues in succession with some commentary. And, uh, and it is a lot, so just, just follow along. The fifth plague. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, and the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt, so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing, and all the, all the livestock of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. So the fifth plague, the livestock die. This, this is another indictment on one of the Egyptian gods who is, uh, is the, the god of, their, um, of all the, the livestock. And what's interesting about this is just our, how far removed we are from like the original context. The response that we have internally when we read about this is much different than even if like a farmer, if, like if anyone in here is a farmer, reads this and, and they'd, they'd take this in a much different way than just the the regular average person would. And even more so, a farmer from like 200 years ago, like even before, you know, the the industrial revolution and uh, those sort of agricultural tools that are created and machines are created, like these are the machines. Like the livestock, they are the labor force, they're the transportation, they're they're military power. Like this is devastating financially to... Egypt, this plague. And still Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He doesn't care enough to change his mind. It's not enough to to nudge him. Uh, And so verse eight, uh, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast through all the land of Egypt. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh. And Moses threw it in the air and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Uh, boils and sores, this, this is like medically devastating. This is like devastating to your sense of comfort. I don't know if you guys ever get canker sores or things like that. I'm like the biggest grumpy baby in the world. If I have a canker sore, I'm just like, I can't think about anything else. And this is like all over. Uh, this, this is, you know, something they, they can't ignore. Um, I don't know for sure why the soot 
from the kiln is thrown up. I, there is a theory that I think makes a lot of sense. If you remember back to when Moses and Aaron initially asked Pharaoh to, to let their people go, and he says, he goes ballistic. He says, no, uh, I'm gonna make the people's work harder. They're, they're making um, bricks for construction, and they would be given straw to create these bricks. And he says, no more straw is gonna be given. Uh, but the same number of bricks are required. You go gather your own straw. And they can't do it, and they're beaten, and they're mistreated worse than before, Also, that, you know, Pharaoh could crush their spirit, and they wouldn't have any thoughts of leaving. Um, and so the, the bricks would be dried in these kilns, and so it seems like maybe what's happening here is the, the very thing that uh, that Pharaoh, the command that he issued that became all this pain and suffering and injustice towards the, the Israelites. Uh, Moses takes some of that and throws it into the air and it becomes the source of pain and suffering for the people of Egypt who inflicted it on them. That th this is a way for God to, uh, to, to get justice for them. And th very similar to the very first plague when uh, the Nile is turned to blood, the Nile where, where the Hebrew infant sons were thrown into the waters and, and killed, and it's turned to blood so that they'll have, uh, they'll, they'll be confronted with the reality of what they've done. This is God getting justice for the people of Israel. And here we see a language shift. So every time there's like a difference in, in the responses or what's happening from each one of these plagues as they're escalating, it's very uh, illuminating. And so in verse 12, um, we see it's not here that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened or he made the decision to harden it himself. Here the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart. The, uh, the Puritans had a saying, the same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And, uh, and, and it, was, it was their way of expressing that people have different responses to God. Some people, when they are confronted with the reality of God, their heart melts. Their hearts become softer. They become more, uh, more receptive to him. And some people have the opposite response. They become more stubborn. They, they harden their hearts even more. Um, Pharaoh has been making the decision again and again to harden his own heart. And now it seems that God is giving him over to the decisions that he's made, to, to who he's revealed himself to be. I always think about this, this one proverb when it comes to Pharaoh, Proverbs uh, 29 verse 11 says, he who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Right? Someone who is often reproved, often corrected, often disciplined, often shown what, what they're doing, why it's wrong, and yet they, they refuse to listen to it suddenly will be broken beyond healing. If, if you're given chance after chance after chance to, to change to grow, to, uh, to, to learn, to repent, right? If you need to repent, you're given all these chances and you form a habit of resisting that every time you get that chance, every time that opportunity comes, eventually a time will come when the chance is taken away from you. You've already made your choice and, and now you're, you're stuck in your choice. And now, you don't know when that's gonna happen. If there's anyone in here who's like, I'm kind of stubborn, like, am I, is that me? Um, I think if you're worried about it, that's a very good indicator that you're not, you know, stuck in it. Um, there, there is still opportunity for you, but that's why it's so important to take an opportunity when you have it. That's important. Isaiah 55 says this, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Like when you have the opportunity, when you're in the place where you're actually considering, like that's the time. Seek him while he may be found, while he's near. Don't let yourself nurture this thought in your own heart where you say, eventually, I'm gonna take faith seriously. You know, like not now, not today, but like one day I'm going to, maybe, you know, after I graduate or after I get a job or after I get married or after I have kids or after I'm retired or whatever it is, don't let yourself nurture that thought. 
when you have an opportunity today, you have an opportunity today. Continuing in Exodus, look at this, verse 13. We're in chapter 9 now. We've been there, but now you know. Uh, Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Again, this is God's purpose in this, right? To show that he is the true God, the false gods that you worship. There's nothing there. There's no substance or power or truth in it. He is the true God, the true creator. He cares about justice. And again, every time he gives Pharaoh a a warning, it's his mercy. And actually, he, he goes further in that now. Just read how God extends mercy to, to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Verse 17, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in the land of Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into his house. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. So God gives the warning, and he says, look, you you have some time here. You have a chance. Like anything that that the last plague didn't strike down of their livestock, you can still save them, bring them in. Um, I don't know why at this point anyone would not listen to him. He's six for six. Like everything he says happens, it's devastating, it's awful. Some people don't listen. Um, but, But this is his mercy. He's making a way for them to escape from the worst consequences of this horrible disaster, hail, crushing things in the field. Um, Some people don't listen. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven. And the Lord said, thunder, uh, sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail. Very heavy hail, such as never had been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, this time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. The flax and the barley were struck down. The barley was in the ear and the flax was in, bu- in, the, in bud. Uh, but the wheat and the emmer were not struck down for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Look at the change in how Pharaoh responds here. Um, This time he seems to admit his own guilt in this, right? I've sinned, uh, I've sinned the Lord Yahweh, your God, he is in the right. He's saying the right words and he seems to be having the right response where this has uh, brought to him an awareness of his own sin, of, of his own flaws and, and what he's done wrong, and it seems to bring about the right decision, the right change. Um, but again, he doesn't follow through. 
Like, he's, he's still stuck in the cycle. We talked about it last week where you are brought to a point where there's, there's like, no other option you, except to, to trust God and, and submit yourself to what he says. It seems like he's, he's the only option there in front of you, and as soon as things get better, you back off, right? And you get so close to this breakthrough in your faith and this breakthrough in trust and this breakthrough in listening to the words of God, but as soon as things get easier and get better, you, you, you back off from it, right? He's stuck in this cycle, and this is important to understand about repentance uh, and what we see from Pharaoh here and the words that he uses. There's, there's two kinds of repentance. Uh, the Bible tells us there are two kinds of pre- uh, repentance. One is uh, a, a worldly grief and one is a godly grief. This is uh, 2 Corinthians verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The, the difference between the two is the difference between whether you're upset about what you did or you're upset that you got caught, right? Worldly grief is you're sorry for yourself. You're sorry for the consequences that you're going to have to live with because you were exposed, uh, the, the way people are going to think about you or, or how this is going to make changes in your life, but it doesn't create a deep or lasting change in you. Uh, you would do the same thing again if you knew you wouldn't get caught, right? That, that's a worldly grief. It's, I would do the same thing. I would just change these things so that no one would ever find out. Uh, godly grief is feeling remorse over the thing that you did, the actual thing that you did, in particular because of the way that it anguishes God. Be- because, you know, God, he, he loves me so much. He's, he's for me. He cares about me. Uh, Jesus gave himself for me. He's loved me so well, and yet I've done this sin against him that causes him grief. And that does create a deep and lasting change in you. Not, I mean, not that you never, ever sin again. Uh, that, you know, if, if godly grief could do that, then there'd be sinless people walking on this earth. Um, but if you find yourself sad over your sin, grieving over your sin, and it doesn't lead to any change, it doesn't lead to any greater levels of obedience and walking in faith and obedience before God, um, that's not real repentance. Real repentance always leads to to obedience, to surrendering yourself to God's will and walking in his way. It's always going to make real change. That's what Corinthians says. Uh, Godly grief produces repentance. It produces a real change. It's not business as usual. Something is going to be different. You're going to try something new to submit yourself to God's will. Pharaoh's repentance is, is a false repentance. He says the right words. Sometimes Christians are really good at saying the right words and, and just kind of covering up and um, obscuring what's actually going on in their hearts. But it gets exposed in the end. And uh, so this is chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go in to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I've dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Um, God affirms something to Moses here that uh, he wants his people, the people of Israel, he wants them to see what he's doing and he wants it to make a lasting impression in them uh, so that they know and they can be confident for the rest of their relationship with this God, and really they're being introduced to him here. For the rest of their relationship, they're going to know, this is the God that I serve. He's the Lord of creation. He has authority over heavens and the earth. And he's for us. Right? He's, he's doing these great acts of judgment to bring us into freedom because he cares for us. He loves us. Right? He wants us to make such a deep impression that they can form this confidence about God that he's good, he loves them, he's true, and he's for them. God's setting up this this whole relationship they're going to have with God. And so verse 3, 
So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? And Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to him, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No. Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Again, there's some differences here that are very illuminating. This is the first time that Pharaoh is actually moved before something happens to, to make any kind of consideration of change. Um, that's how devastating this one is. That this is a, a total loss of all their food production, everything that's left to them, and, and it'll, it'll cripple them. Uh, Moses says, you know, how, like, are you still, like, how long are you going to resist God and suffer? Even his own servants, they say the same thing. Like, Egypt is ruined. How long are you going to resist God and suffer? Just listen to him. And so Pharaoh tries his very hardest. He, uh, he, gives, it, he gives it the old college try. He wants, to, he wants to hear it out. He wants to know exactly what this is going to look like, exactly what this might, might cost him and what he might have to let go of. And, uh, and he's, still, he's still trying to bargain with God, you know? Like, do you see that where he says, this is what you're asking? He's telling him, like, no, no, that's not what you want. This is what you want. Um, he's, he's doing it because he's, he's afraid of, uh, he's afraid of not having control. He wants to hold on to some, some little hostages so that he can make sure that everything's going to go back to the way it was before. Um, but again, partial surrender is not surrender. If you have something that God wants you to do, a step that he wants you to take or, or something that he wants you to let go of and, and you're holding back from that, like that holding back, that is, that is a problem. You're not really walking with God if you're resisting the thing that he's asking you to do. Verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been seen before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened, and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said again, he's saying the words again, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from him, uh, so he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Same, same pattern, same things happening. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. He, he's made his choice and revealed who he is, and now he's, he's stuck with those decisions that he'd made. Keep reading. This is, this is as far as we're going today, I promise, the end of chapter 10. Uh, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt there uh, three days. 
They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they had lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock must also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take uh, of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord uh, with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. Oh, I, uh, I feel accomplished. I'm, I'm going to try and never preach two and a half chapters ever again. I feel like I need a nap after this. Um, this, uh, this plague, three days of darkness, of darkness to be felt. Like, you know when, uh, like, at night, and you're, you're in a dark room, and your eyes adjust, and you start to see the things around you, so you can avoid banging your shin on things? There's no adjustment. This is a complete darkness, a darkness to be felt that locks people where they are. They can't even rise up or go anywhere. They're, they're trapped alone in this darkness. That's terrifying. This, this is God's indictment on the most famous Egyptian god, uh, the god of the sun, Ra, that this God of Israel, this Yahweh, he is the true God of the sun, the God who has authority to give and withhold light from the sun. One thing I really love about Moses' answer to Pharaoh is this is like so much the experience of the Christian life. Again, he's trying to, to, to haggle and say like, well, don't take everything with you. Uh, still need to hold on to something. And Moses says, no, no, here's why we need to go with everything. We need to go with everything because uh, obedience to God is rooted in faith. And all Moses knows is like, we're supposed to go out and, and worship and, and hold these sacrifices and these feasts to the Lord, but we, I don't know any of the details of that. I don't know what he's gonna ask when, what it's gonna look like. And so he's just gonna take everything with them so they're prepared. Uh, we don't need to know all the details of what obedience to God looks like in order to step forward in faith. You know, the, the most important thing to you, it's not to know everything, not to know exactly how it's going to look or exactly how it's going to work out. The most important thing is the commitment, the determination in your own heart. I want to be faithful to God. I want to be as faithful as I can possibly be. And so I'm just going to go where he's telling me to go. I'm going to step into what he's presented me to step into. And then he's going to help with the details. He's going to make that all work out. I just want to be faithful. Like that's the Christian life. It's obedience rooted in faith. Now, just to recap some of the things that we learned from all of this, because we, we read a ton, or we see a lot. Uh, number one, maybe, maybe the greatest lesson that, that God is trying to teach Egypt through this, uh, that he is the true God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has exposed the false gods so thoroughly. Like, we could have gotten into more details into each of these plagues and, and which of the Egyptian gods that are being exposed as false, but it was just a lot. And so if you want deeper study, you can go into deeper study in this. Um, but he's, he's showing that he himself is the creator and the Lord of creation. The, the, the Egyptians have a god of the Nile. Uh, the God of Israel is the one who has authority over the Nile. They have a God of the sun. He's the one who has authority over the sun. He's the one who has authority over all creation. And I love this. Everything obeys God in this, right? It was like my favorite thing just reading through this. Everything in all creation obeys the word of the Lord. He created the waters. They listen to him. They, they turn to blood when, when they're leaving. He parts the Red Sea. The water obeys him. The, the light of the sun obeys him. Uh, he creates life. The, the frogs obey him. The gnats and the flies obey him. Right? Everything obeys God in here, except for what? People. Right? Pharaoh refuses to obey God. It's not unique to him. 
saw it with Moses. He tries his very hardest not to obey God, right? We say no to God. We are in rebellion against God. Everything in creation listens to and obeys the words of the creator except for us. We, we resist him. Uh, second thing that we learn from this, the Lord is a good God and a just judge. He's not doing these things for no reasons. It's not arbitrary, right? He makes it very clear he is judging and punishing the sin of Egypt. He, this is in response to injustice and suffering. He cares about injustice, he cares about suffering, and he has wrath towards sin. As part of being a loving God is to have wrath towards sin. I mean, if you love anything, you have to have wrath towards the things that, uh, that bring suffering upon what you love. You know, you, you can't be a loving parent if, if you don't hate the stuff that destroys their lives. God has wrath towards sin. In fact, he has so much. He cares so much about injustice and he cares so much about suffering and sin that he makes sure that the price has to be paid for it, right? God is not going to let any sin or any injustice go um, unaccounted for. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament in chapter nine says this, indeed under the law almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. Right? Sin is such a serious thing. It's more serious than we think more serious than we want it to be. That's such a serious thing. It requires the shedding of blood. Like just saying words isn't enough. You can't just say that I'm sorry. You can't just just make um, make some some gestures. Uh, you can't just make some promises, and that makes your sin okay. It it requires the shedding of blood, and that's a problem for us because if we are sinners, if we are guilty of our sin, we can't pay the debt that we owe. Like we can't get rid of our blood and still be alive. Just can't do that. Don't try it. The third thing that we learn in all of this, the, the good news that we see in all of this, is that the Lord is a gracious Savior. At the same time that he is a just judge, he is a gracious savior. You see evidence of his grace in, uh, in his dealing with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians that he gives him these warnings, right? He gives him a way to escape the worst consequences of, uh, of his judgment. Pharaoh, he doesn't listen. He doesn't take those opportunities. He has some measure of grace for them. Um, but really where we see God being such a gracious Savior is the very first thing that we read in, in, in the fourth plague that he makes a distinction between his people and Pharaoh's people. And in the land of Goshen, they're not experiencing any of this. They're spared from all of it. God's people are protected by his grace. And that's the key there. It's by his grace. It's, it's this free gift that God is giving to this people. The, the people of Israel, you can't read the Bible and come away thinking that they are better than anyone else, right? They're not more moral. They're not more faithful. In fact, uh, there, there are times in the Bible where God says, I chose you because you're the most stubborn, so I can, I can show everyone how great my patience is because of how stubborn you are. Uh, if you just keep reading to the end of Exodus, they get out of Egypt and they're, they're freed from their slavery, but every single time, the first sign of delay, the first sign of inconvenience, they want to walk away from God and go back to their slavery in Egypt. Right? God doesn't have grace on the people of Israel because they are more devoted than anyone else, because they are better than anyone else. It's because they're his because God had made a promise to Abraham that, that your descendants are going to be my people and I will be their God and I will show my grace to them. God has grace for 
his people. And the good news for us is the way that we belong to the people of God today is not by being descended through Abraham or observing the law of Moses. We become the people of God through his son Jesus by faith in him and his work for us on the cross where he pays the debt that we owe, that Jesus sheds his blood to forgive our sin and set us free. And all the, all the wrath of God for sin that we see in the, the plagues on Egypt, I mean, the, the, these are the things that Jesus experiences on the cross. Maybe the most striking one is that on the cross for three hours, the sun is darkened where, while Jesus is being crucified. Just like God withholds the, the light from the Egyptians, he's withholding the light from his son Jesus as he is suffering under the wrath of God for your sin and my sin. Jesus goes to the cross for you because he loves you. See, not only is God the one who has given you life and breath in everything, he's also the God that while you're a sinner, while you're in rebellion to him, Jesus gives himself for you because he loves you. He, he invites you, he opens his arms to you, he says there's a way for you, there's a way for you to be forgiven, there's a way for you to have life, there's a way for you to escape from all of this. He invites you and brings you into the people of God. He adopts you into his family. He wants you to have the confidence he's trying to give to Israel here in Exodus that he's for you. That you can trust him. You can trust that his will is good. That, that when he asks for your obedience and he asks for his, your, your surrender, you know he, he loves me, he's for me, his, he's good, his way is better than my way. I'm, I'm gonna trust him. I'm gonna walk in obedience. I'm not gonna hold anything back. I'm not gonna try and bargain anymore. I'm gonna trust him. We see the great love that God has for us on the cross through his son Jesus and the price that he paid for us. What we're going to do next as a church is we're going to take communion. Uh, so after I, I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up and they're going to start playing and as they're playing, you're going to see some people get up and uh, they're going to start passing out uh, the communion elements. Communion is something that Christians do. If you're not a Christian, you can just let it pass by you. Um, if you are a Christian or if today you want to make this decision to say, I, I want to... Uh, I, I want to stop holding myself back. I want to break the cycle. I want to put my trust in the God who's for me and the Jesus who loves me. Uh, maybe the very first act that you do as a Christian would be to take communion with us today. Uh, and so they're going to pass everything out. And uh, when they're done, I'm going to come up during the song and then we'll, uh, I'll lead us through taking communion together. And so um, let, me, let me pray for us.